something. Bill, turn on the air conditioner on the platform. <laughs> it's hot up here now. <laughs> Boy, I hate to even say what the title of my message is tonight, God's Answer for Dead Churches. <laughs> I think I just heard it. <laughs> you know, it is sad to me that, uh, and I was talking to somebody this morning, it is sad to me that that people think that conservative theology means dead music. And it doesn't mean that. Conservative theology ought to be the most, the thing that brings joy and joy to our music, not just going through motions and just kind of coasting along, but allowing God to speak to us and then allow us to speak to Him in songs and hymns and spiritual songs and giving praise and honor to Him. So I want us to look at Acts chapter 2 tonight. And uh, I want us to talk a little bit about how God stirs a church, works in a church, what God uses in a church. Because quite honestly, the majority of churches in America are declining or status quo. Uh, They are not reaching their communities. They are not touching people's lives. There are once great churches that are now a shell of what they used to be. And they live in the past and talk about what they once did for God or how they used to have great crowds or used to baptize a lot of people. And I'm afraid that pastors have become nothing more than certified and well-trained morticians presiding over nothing more than funerals and dead services and dead churches. When I read the book of Acts, I don't see that. It's not a valley of dry bones. It's a living body, a living organism that God moved in and changed people's lives and and filled them with enthusiasm and with power and and with the, the boldness that only God could do in the lives of people. Now, before we really get into it tonight, I've got a confession to make. Uh, During my sabbatical and since my sabbatical, I have had to go back and reevaluate church. It is very easy, even when you know what your roots are and know what you were taught, it is very easy to get on the track that everybody says you're supposed to be running on. And to begin to say, well, we need this program and that program and this idea and that idea. And we begin to add to rather than just be. And I've had to do some serious thinking, and the staff can tell you that we've pulled a number of things off the calendar for this year to simplify to try to simplify our lives, our church culture, and try to make sure that the main thing is the main thing and we're doing the main thing and we're not so busy dabbling in 40 things that we don't do the this one thing that Paul said he did. And so uh, there will be things that maybe you saw in November when we said, here's what we're going to do this next year. You may not see them. Because we're really trying to simplify back to some very basic things that we need to do right. It won't matter if we're running fast if we're running in the wrong direction. And so we want to make sure we're running in the right direction, doing the right thing, doing what God's called us to do. And I've got to be honest with you, the study in the book of Acts has done as much to do that for me as anything. And between the study in the book of Acts and God just speaking in my heart and and I'm just speaking to you tonight because you're the Sunday night crowd and the Sunday morning crowd probably wouldn't get this, but uh, just speaking to you, you know, where I am and, and where I'm coming from and what God has done in my life and the people that God's put in my life, like Ron Dunn and Vance Havner and other people, they never made it real complicated. And when I look at the book of Acts, it's not real complicated. It's walking in the fullness of the Spirit and sharing with people what Christ has done in your life. It is a church that prays together and works together and serves together and has all things in common. In other words, we have a common heartbeat. 
We have a common goal. We have a common mission. We're not out doing individual things. We're doing a, a body thing. The arm's not running over here and the leg running in another direction. We're just focused on where he wants us to be. Now, here's what I know for me. I know that God's call on my life is threefold for this church, to lead, to cast vision, and to proclaim the word. And that's what I'm supposed to do. Now, what that means is that there are other people that do other things in the life of this church. That's why we have staff to do and focus on different and various functions in the life of the church. But if I get out of what I'm supposed to do, then I can't do what God called me to do. Does that make sense? If, if, if I'm not preparing to proclaim because I'm doing something else, then I shortchange you because you've given up time on a Sunday night to come. And so if I'm not ready, then I shortchange you. And then if we have staff doing things that we need you to do, then we shortchange you and them. And that's why we need the body to work together and the body to function because quite honestly, and I think you know this, none of us on this staff are too good to do anything. But if we're going to do what God's called us to do, then we need everybody in the church to do what God's called them to do. So that we serve together as a body and that the body fits and functions like it's supposed to. God has called you as a believer. He's called you into His service and He has gifted you to fill a role in the life of the church. It may be totally different from the role that I have. It is no less important. It's just different. There's not a hierarchy as much as there is a cooperation that happens when God's Spirit begins to work. And what happens is is we get in the church, and, and this is true of any church of any denomination. I don't care who they are, whether every church has got structure and every church has got stuff. Vance Havner said, every movement of God begins with a man, it turns into a movement, it becomes machinery, and then it becomes a monument to its past. Now that can happen in an individual church as well as in a denomination. It can begin with a man. That's what happened to the church after the first century. It became a movement. And then, you know, we had places that that just made it machinery. You know, this is what we do. You come and you kneel here and you stand up here and you kneel there and you, you you do this and you say this and then you go home. And it just became perfunctory. And then you have a monument. You've got large cathedrals with nobody in them. Symbols of what used to be, but is no longer relevant. So one of the things that I think we have to look at in the book of Acts is that those things happen for several reasons. I think they happen because of prayerlessness. I think they happen if we plan and then pray. Does that make sense? I cannot tell you how many times in my ministry I've put together my plan for what I wanted God to do. I I can remember doing this in youth camps, Keith. Golly, I would put together my plan, and then I'd say, Now, Lord, I need you to bless what I've done. And God'd say, I'm not going to bless what you've done. I'll bless what I do. And there's a difference. There's a difference in me telling God what I want done and God telling me what He wants done. I think it can be just a lack of vision and faith and trust in God that God's going to do what He's going to do to His honor and glory. Listen, God is more concerned about lost people in Albany, Georgia than I am or than anybody in this room is. God is more concerned about the things that divide this community than any of us are. And so all I need to do is get the heart of God. I've just got to get in tune with Him. And I've got to make sure that I am not doing what I do by my own efforts, but I'm doing them by the power of God. And I think a church can be very active and be very busy and in fact be dead doing the wrong things. I mean, you read most church calendars and see the things that they've got and it would exhaust anybody. But are they doing what God wants them to do? And so I, I must confess to you that I have had some reevaluating and some analyzing of where we are, where we've been, and where we need to go, and come to just some conclusions that we don't need to accept things 
just because that it's my responsibility to go before God and say, God, yes or no, do it or wait. And that's what I believe part of my responsibility for this church is, is to not get us going so fast that we do the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong way and then ask God to bless it. He is the Lord of the harvest. And it is His church. Did, Did you notice... I know this may be, it's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church. So I think he's more concerned about our health and our growth than we are. So what I need to do is just cooperate with him. Make sense? Okay, good. I'll move on then. (laughs) Roy Clements said, Analysis can no more give life to a church than dissection can give life to a body. Once a church becomes preoccupied with analysis and guidelines and evaluations, it is a sure sign the church has lost its direction. The spontaneity and fire of the early church is something you can catch like an infection, but only out of exposure to the book. The secret is in this phrase that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power. Now, power is not a word that I would use to describe most churches. Most of the churches that I am privileged to go and preach in sometimes, are, uh, they're characterized by their performances or by their productions or their pageants. They're not characterized by power. And it doesn't make any difference if we have the 85th annual whatever if there's no power in it. If we're just doing it because we always did it, because after all, in a Baptist church, you know if you've done it once, you got to do it again. I mean, we have to do it again because after all, God blessed it the first time, so we must assume that He will bless it the second time. You know, God... God used the brass serpent one time, didn't He? That's it. You know what they did? They started worshiping the brass serpent. They started offering incense to the brass serpent. Something God used one time, 750 years later, the people of Israel are worshiping it like it's a God. I've seen that happen in churches. Some program, some event, some thing gets on the church calendar, and all of a sudden somebody says, Oh, that's a sacred cow. Well, listen... The only thing I know a cow is good for is a Chick-fil-A commercial and a hamburger. And there are no sacred cows unless you live in India. Nothing is sacred except the Word of God. And we always have to go back and say, what is it that we are known by? What is it that we are known for? And the power of the Holy Spirit of God, I believe, crosses barriers and builds bridges. Now, here's what I see in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the gospel overcame prejudice without destroying distinctives. In other words, everybody didn't become just alike. Oh, well, if if you're going to be a member of our church, you've got to wear a certain kind of clothes. You know, your robe needs to come from Sears. And your staff needs to come from Home Depot. If yours is from Lowe's, then you need to go somewhere else. But I've seen churches get that silly about things. Everybody's got to look alike, dress alike, talk alike, use the same Bible. Listen, my God's bigger than that. He's a whole lot bigger than that. And He overcomes... Man-made barriers, how? By the power of the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit empowering His church. And when I read the book of Acts, and we're just about to get there, by the way. When I read the book of Acts, you know what? They didn't have a missions emphasis. They didn't say, well, now it's time for us to talk about Lottie Moon. Gary Miller used to tell the story about a lady in, in his church that came out of a Catholic background. She didn't know anything about Lottie Moon. She, she was in his dad's church in New York on, on uh, Long Island, Manhattan. Long Island is Long Island. And she went up to him one day. She went up to, to Don Miller one day and said, Brother Miller, said, when are we going to get this woman home from China? 
How much money does it take for us to get her out of there? We never get letters from her. She never calls. She never writes. She had no clue. You know what? The early church didn't have a mission emphasis. The early church was mission-minded. The early church was evangelistically minded. It wasn't just, okay, we're going to do it tonight. It was as you go, they did it. The early church didn't have experts to come in and evaluate. I've served churches where we've paid thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for some expert to come in and say, well, you know, maybe you ought to put the doorknob on this side. I think that's more user-friendly. The church just relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? They got bigger and better and faster and more spiritual than any church you know anything about. And they didn't have any of the things that we have and we say we have to have. Now when Peter stands up to preach, this is seven weeks after the crucifixion of Christ. And look if you would at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we were all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you have both seen and heard. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I am convinced the answer to the problem of dead and stagnant and dying churches is the unhindered, unquestioned proclamation of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what brings a church to life, it is the proclamation of Jesus Christ without compromise. And so let's look at the proclamation of His life and ministry. In verse 14, it says that Peter, taking his stand, said, Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. In verse 22, listen to these words. Peter's not apologizing. Peter's not standing up saying, uh, you don't mind if I share a little bit, do you? I, I hope I don't offend anybody today. Uh, I'm trying not to step on anybody's toes. I want everybody to like me. I'm hoping that you'll have me over for collard greens when I get through. No. He said, you better listen to me. You better listen to what I'm telling you because I'm telling you about truth. Now, there are three words about preaching, three facts about preaching. I love this. I, I, I heard this years ago in seminary. First of all, you stand up to be seen, you speak up to be heard, and you shut up to be appreciated. That's what Peter did. He preached at most for 10 minutes. And look at what he covered in 10 minutes. And you, I know you're going to say, well, when are you going to preach a 10-minute sermon? <laughs> well, I'm not Simon Peter. <laughs> I'm working on it. 10 minutes, an hour, it's all the same. There is no time in God's economy. <laughs> in, uh, first of all, incarnation. Jesus the Nazarene. Now he's speaking to the contemporaries of Christ the people who have crucified Him. And He says, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the one who came to show us what God intended man to be. Jesus the Nazarene, He says, you saw the signs and the miracles and the resurrection. Now, here's something that you, this is, and I will say this two or three times tonight because I want you to get it. Nobody 
refuted one thing that Simon Peter said. Nobody in that crowd that seven weeks before had crucified Jesus Christ because he claimed to be the Son of God, nobody could refute the facts that Peter was giving to them. We had to wait until we were enlightened in the 19th century to start refuting the miracles of Christ and questioning the miracles of Christ. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. What he's saying is, I, I know this is controversial, but this is conclusive evidence. God did this in your midst. It was a work of God. He was not a magician. It was not sleight of hand. It was not the devil. The things that he did, water into wine, healing people, raising the dead, feeding the 5,000 are facts. And the enemies of God could not refute one sign, one wonder, one fact. Everything that God did was a proven fact. You could have read about it in the paper. You could have searched the internet if they had had it. And it would have said, these things happened. And there were eyewitnesses to this. And what Peter is saying, all of us were eyewitnesses. We all saw it. And God performed through him. This was a work of God. An irrefutable work of God. One of the great books that I read, uh, and this will get down to our, a, a point later, but one of the great books I read in, in college was Who Moved the Stone? And the book was written by an English gentleman who was a lawyer who set out to refute the resurrection. And in studying and researching the history of the resurrection and in studying historical books as well as theological books, he got saved because he couldn't refute the resurrection. There was too much evidence. Jesus operated under the divine approval of God. God had come down in the form of a dove and he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's not a teacher. He's not a prophet like Mohammed. He's not a leader. He's not just God's representative. He's God in flesh. Jesus the Nazarene. And I'm convinced that one of the things we have to do in this society in which we live is unapologetically speak to the deity of Christ. God in flesh. Because if He is not deity... You have nothing to share except another religious leader with another spin on whatever the gospel might be. But he is deity. Secondly, there's the crucifixion. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. There's still no rebuttal. There's still no, hey, wait a minute, we didn't do that. Uh oh, we weren't there. Oh, that wasn't our decision. He says it was accomplished by the Jews through the hands of godless men. Now, godless men, he's referring to the Romans. And the reason he calls them godless men is because they did not believe in the laws of God. And so he says, this has all been done by your hands, but it has fulfilled God's predetermined plan. This didn't catch God off guard. There are people that have written that Jesus got backed into a corner and he had no choice. Oh, he did. There are people that have written that, that uh, he, it was all manipulation and it really, or it really didn't happen. It did. It happened by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. God knew it was going to happen. And he's not saying here that the Jews and the Romans had no choice but he's saying here, man didn't get the last word in who Jesus was and what was going to happen after it. So there's the resurrection, verse 24. But God raised him up again. Verse 31, he refers to David, and he says, He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again in which we are all witnesses. Now in this one sermon, there are nine verses that refer to the resurrection. It is a message on the resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, there's no gospel. Our faith is in vain. It is futile. It is hopeless if there's no resurrection. Now this is seven weeks again after the fact. Nobody could produce a body. Now don't you know that the high priest 
had everybody he could get his hands on to go search Jerusalem and in a large area around Jerusalem trying to find where they had hidden that body. Don't you know that there's any way they could have found a fresh grave? They dug it up trying to see if they could get the body of Jesus. You know the Romans did because if a Roman guard fell asleep on the job, it was the death penalty and those Roman guards fell asleep and the angel rolled the stone away. You know the Roman guards wanted to find the body. You know that Rome wanted to find Everybody was embarrassed. Everybody was upset. But there were 500 witnesses. And by the way, they still haven't found the body because there's no body to find. That body's in heaven where man can't touch it. In fact, man will never touch that body again to hurt it. Man will either see that body and realize that he has rejected the Lord God or he will praise that body and see the nail-scarred hands. There's only one body in heaven with wounds, and that's the body of Jesus, the resurrected Lord. He was resurrected. And Peter took this textbook, he quotes Joel and he quotes David, and he throws it right back at him, and he says, it's been fulfilled what was foretold. And I do think that this is one of the greatest evidences of the validity of the resurrection that Peter stood in the city where Jesus had been crucified before the religious leaders who had wanted him killed, before the people who had shouted for Barabbas, and in the presence of those people and in that place, nobody challenged his message on the resurrection. Nobody did. They stood in stunned silence. And so he moves right from the resurrection to the exaltation in verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. Now what he does in verse 33 is he connects the dots between the exaltation of Christ and the events of Pentecost. Why was Christ exalted? Christ was exalted, he ascended, and he was exalted so that the Spirit could come. I have to leave so that another can come. That's what Jesus had told His disciples. And He connects all of this, and what He's saying to them is, look, Jesus came to show us life as God intended. He died to show us the love of God. He was raised to show us He was Messiah, and He was exalted so the Spirit could come. Major Ian Thomas said he had to be what he was in order to do what he did. He had to do what He did in order that we might have what He is. And we must have what He is in order to be what He was. Secondly, the proclamation of the promise of the Spirit. He has poured forth, verse 36 says, that which you both see and hear. Now, what had happened? The fire and the wind... And the languages had all attracted people. This noise had attracted people to this place. And he gets them that all that's happened to get a crowd. And then he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now listen, you crucified, that's man's decision. God has made him Lord in Christ. That's God's decision. What Peter is saying to these people who have crucified Christ, God overruled your decision. You sized him up. You looked at him. You listened to him. You heard what he said. You saw what he did, and you decided, you know, we need to kill him. He's a threat. You crucified him. But God raised him up. God overruled what you decided to do. What man rules, God can always overrule. And that's what he did here. God never, ever, ever leaves with man the last word. Man never gets the last word. Well, we killed him, wrapped him up, put him in a tomb, sealed it up, and put some Roman guards. That does it. That took care of that guy. And God said, I'll wait three days and then I'll get the last word. They walked away from a cross and they said, well, we killed that fanatic prophet. That preacher who stirred up and questioned our authority as the Pharisees. We got rid of him. 
God said, I'm not through yet. You just think you got rid of him. I'm about to unleash a power that you can't stop. You may can think you can kill him, but you can't stop him because he's coming back. And so here's the proclamation of the Spirit of coming. And they knew that he was telling them the truth, that God had come in flesh and they had ignored them. This was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now here's an uneducated fisherman who knows his Bible. And he studies his Bible. And, and the church had power, and Peter had power because there was a clear word from God's Word. They didn't stumble, they didn't stutter, they didn't apologize, they didn't back up. There was a clear word from the Word of God. And I think one of the things we need in our society today, and one of the things that's becoming increasingly harder, more so now than any time in my ministry, is that we live in a world where there are no absolutes. What you believe is right, what I believe is right. The world is full of gray areas, there's no black and white. Everything's subjective. And there needs to be clear proclamation of the Word of God. We kind of need to be like gunslingers in the Old West, folks. We don't need to blink when we're facing the enemy. And we don't need to twitch. We need to stand firm and shoot a good gospel bullet every now and then. Because the world needs to know that somebody believes there's right and wrong even if they don't believe it. We're responsible to speak the truth whether people hear it or receive it or not. It's our job to speak the truth. And that's what we're called to do, and that's what Peter stands up and does. And so he says, all this has happened. This is not a surprise. You've come wondering what's going on. Hey, Joel said this was going to happen. This is just the fulfillment of what Joel foretold and what David foresaw. This is all being fulfilled now in our midst. And then he comes to the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Now in verse 12, the crowd asks about all these signs, what does this mean? Now you may want to circle verse 12 and draw a line all the way to verse 37. Because their first question is, what does this mean? You know, people drop by this church every day going, I wonder what that, what's that all about? What does this mean? But after Peter explains it to them in verse 37, they say, what shall we do? They go from what does this mean to what shall we do? Now they know what it means. Christ has come. God has come in the flesh. God has lived among them a sinless life. He's been crucified and resurrected and ascended. And now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They heard a message. They received the message. They believed the message. Peter explained the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Christ. And it was so clear, 3,000 people were saved. In 10 minutes. People that had had one opinion seven weeks before, now came to a totally different conclusion because the power of God was so on what was happening that in ten minutes they realized and their hearts were pierced, how? By the Holy Spirit of God convicting of sin. That's what Jesus said the Spirit would do. He said when He comes, He will convict of sin. Now, there are two or three things here. First of all, knowledge leads to conviction. Knowledge leads to conviction. You see, if you don't know, you're not going to change. Don't assume that everybody knows who Jesus is anymore. I was raised in a time where we still prayed in school, and when we, you know, I mean, the teacher could have a Bible on her desk. Now, now you get fired for those kind of things. Don't assume that people today know the Bible or know even basic facts about it, or know the Scriptures. Do you know that in a survey of college freshmen, that they asked them, well, who, what are the epistles? And they said that number one answer was the wives of the apostles. By the way, that was in a Bible college. 
Why are our young people so biblically ignorant? Because their parents have not taught them and proclaimed to them the truth of God's Word. They don't know basic facts. They don't know basic truths. And we throw them out into a secular world and say live for Jesus, and they're not equipped and prepared to live for Jesus. With knowledge comes conviction. With knowledge comes, I need to know more. I need to be prepared. And they have this knowledge. And the Scripture says, how will they hear without a preacher? The Scripture says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Bible says you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, if knowledge leads to conviction, then conviction demands a decision. Now, there were hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, 3,000 believed, so that doesn't mean everybody's going to believe. The Word was preached for all to hear, and 3,000 believed. You say, well, they didn't reach many of them. Well, they had 3,000 more 10 minutes later than they had when they started. You've been a part of a church that's done that? I haven't. I've been a part of churches when we had three people saved in a revival. We said, oh man, we're reliving the days of Pentecost. I'm going, dear God, we've lowered our standard that much. I'm not saying we don't get excited about three. I'm just saying we don't brag about it like we're doing what the early church did. With conviction comes decision, and with decision there's a response. Repent and be baptized. Now folks, listen. Salvation is not something that happens and then you become a secret agent. Stealth Christians. I'm a Christian, but nobody knows. When they had to be baptized, they had to be baptized, and that was a forsaking of their Jewish faith, and it would mean, as it does today, that they would be cut off from their family, that their family would have a funeral and pronounce them dead and treat them as if they were non-existent to say that you believe that Jesus was the Messiah cost you your inheritance, cost you your family, cost you your friends. It could have cost you your life. By the way, remember, they had already killed the leader of this movement. Why wouldn't they kill these 3,000? They were outnumbered. To repent is to change mind and to change directions, to change the who's the boss sign on your desk. To be baptized is to publicly identify with Christ. And I believe that salvation happens in a moment, but I believe the evidence of salvation is what you do with your life. And if you've had a moment and there's no life change, I would challenge your moment. I don't care if you wrote it in the front of your Bible that at nine years of age I walked the aisle and you hadn't been in church in 20 years, I'd challenge the moment. Because the Scripture says, by their fruit you know them. Not by a decision card at the church. Not by a church roll on a computer, but by their fruit, you know them. And so he said to them, repent and be baptized. And did you notice that that's immediately what they did? Why? Because baptism was identification. It was identifying with Christ. And God said, Peter said, you repent and be baptized and God will do what? He will give forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit. Man's responsibility, repent and be baptized. God's response, forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now what Joel had prophesied, Joel said that what will happen in the last age will begin with proclamation and end with tribulation. Do you understand that we are... 2,000 years closer to the end than we were then. I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. He's not told me and He you know, hadn't told you either. But I know this, I'm closer now than Simon Peter was. I'm closer than Paul was. I'm closer than Martin Luther was. I'm closer than John Wesley and John Calvin were. I'm, I'm closer than Spurgeon was. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people and we all say the same thing. Wouldn't you just love to be alive at the coming of Jesus? 
truth of the matter is that may not happen for us. We may all die before he comes back. But he is coming back. Amen. Whether we are alive or dead, he's coming back. And so with a sense of urgency like the early church had, we must proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Because there's coming a day when the last person will be saved and the books will be closed and every name that is to be in the Lamb's book of life is there and God will turn to the Son and say, go get your church. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It's just, it's so simple that we don't get it sometimes. And so we try to muddy the waters. And, you know, I, I, I'm so weary of going, and I've got to go to a meeting in two weeks, and there'll be about 50 pastors there. and We'll have this discussion about, well, what are you doing, and what are you doing, and what are you doing, and what are you doing? Well, what are you doing? Well, what's your church doing? Well, what program are you using? And I'd forgotten that I'd even done this, but uh, when I was at uh, First Baptist Muscle Shoals doing their men's retreat a couple of weeks ago, uh, the pastor of the church said, you know, he said, I didn't know, Michael, but he said, you know, everybody's talking about they bring the power team in, the dancing ballerinas and everything, all these kind of things they bring in to draw a crowd and everything. And he said, Michael just kind of blurted out in the middle of that meeting, what happened to the proclamation of the gospel? And he said, I knew then, I like him. So he had me come speak to his men. I'm so tired of churches trying to copy other churches. Oh, that church is doing that. Let's go do that. You know what, folks? Somehow in God's plan and somehow in God's economy, He has a plan and a purpose for this church in this community that is unique to this church and unique to this community. And if we try to be somebody else, we will fail. We'll fail. We're supposed to be who we are and who God saved us to be. You know, think, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's different in Albany, Georgia than it is in Chicago. That's just a thought. But I've watched hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands now, go up to, church, to a church in Chicago and try to come back and import that into their church and say, we're not going to be this anymore, we're going to be this and scare people and run people off and cause confusion and disunity. Why? Because they're trying to make a church into something God didn't want it to be. And we have got the Xerox-itis. If somebody else has done it, go to the copy machine and run off a bunch of copies and hand it out to churches and let's all do the same thing. And you know what we do? We end up goose-stepping. Pardon the expression. Just marching along, toe-to-toe, leg to leg, doing what everybody else did. And there's no individuality. I, I, I'm through worrying about what everybody else does. Every now and then I'll see a brochure and I'll see a good idea. Oh, that's a nice idea. That's a good idea. I may pass it along to a staff member or something, but I want to tell you, God's led us to do some things He hadn't led anybody else to do. I've shared about our prayer blitz with 50 other churches. You know, not one of them had picked up on it. You know why? One of their core values is not prayer. So if your core value is not prayer, why would you call people and pray for them? I passed on other things, but you know, that's fine. But you know, after 13 years, I know more about who we are today and who we're supposed to be than I did when I came. And I've got to tell you, I've led us to do some stupid things. 
in 13 years that if I could go back and do over, I wouldn't do them again. Because it was a good idea. But it wasn't God's idea. And so I'm asking you tonight to pray for me that if there's an idea, I know and discern the difference between a good idea and God's idea. Because one will have to muscle up and make it happen. God's idea will just get in the flow of the Spirit of God and we'll go with Him. Doesn't mean we'll work any less. Doesn't mean we'll work any, uh, any, uh, you know, we'll cut back on our working. It just means we'll work doing the right things, building the right way on a sure foundation. I want folks to look at this church one day and say, you know, it's not a perfect church. I know some of the members of it and I know the pastor. Not far from a perfect church, but I can tell you this. They sure seek to be New Testament. And that would be the greatest compliment anybody could give us. It's not that we look and act like everybody else, but that we are who we are in Christ and we fulfill our role in this community and we reach the people that God has told us to reach and called us to reach and we do the ministries that God's called us to do and we quit worrying about what everybody else is doing. I can't tell you how many people in town from other churches always trying to find out what we're doing. And I say to their members when they do that, why don't y'all just worry about what you're doing? Now you can pray for us. But you know, God's called you to be on that piece of property at that place at this time. So do God's will for your church. And pray for us that we'll do God's will in our church. I pray for other churches in this town. I pray for other pastors in this town. But I'm not worried about what they're doing or not doing and I'm not competing against them. Okay? We're not in competition with anybody. The only competition we've got is against the world, the flesh, and the devil, not against other churches. Oh, that church is growing. Good. Bless God. I hope every church in this town grows. I would wish God's blessings on every church in this town that preaches the word of Jesus without apology. Folks, I'll tell you, I, I'm, I'm through playing the preacher game of let's find something new so we can look cute and impress people. If prayer and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and our obedience in those areas can't build this church, then we shouldn't do another thing. I just still believe, call it naive, call it simple in 21st century, I still believe that God will use today what He used then. And I've risked at this point my reputation and whatever anybody thinks about me on the fact that I'm just going to do what they did back then. And then it's going to have to be up to the Lord of the harvest to bring the harvest. Let's pray together. Father, make us the church that you want us to be. Give us the heart that you want us to have. Help us to understand we don't have to go outside the boundaries of the Word of God to reach people or impress people or to draw people in. Your Word says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so, Father, all I know to do at this point in my life and at this point in the life of this church 
is to preach Jesus and to pray for people and as I go to make disciples. I don't want to be cute. I don't want to do something just because it looks good or sounds good or somebody would write it up somewhere or anything else. God, I just simply want to get back to what your word says. Lord, we've been a church for almost 50 years. I don't think you could add up all of our baptisms and come up with 3,000. And yet in a spirit-filled environment with the unapologetic preaching of the word, 3,000 were saved in one day. A few days later, another four. And by the middle of the book of Acts, there were 100,000 members of that church. God, we have just messed it all up. Thinking that we could help you out in building your kingdom. Forgive us. Forgive me for being busy doing the wrong things sometimes and not keeping my eye on the ball and staying true to what I've known all my life. Bring life and joy and converts into this place because we dare to take you at your word. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here tonight and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're here tonight and you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church home, then I want to invite you to just slip out right now from where you are. We're just, I'm just going to ask Heather to play. I just ask you to just stand up where you are and just come and find one of our ministers here at the front and share with them that there's a response to the message and there's a response to the gospel that you need to make tonight, maybe for church membership, maybe for salvation. And while people are weighing that decision, and you can come even as I'm talking, I want to read you a quote by Chuck Swindoll that I had written in the front of my Bible that I wrote 15, 20 years ago. The church gets in trouble when it thinks it is in the church business and not kingdom business. In church business, people are concerned with business meetings and religious behavior. In kingdom business, people are concerned with kingdom activities and kingdom lifestyle. Church people think about how to get folks into church. Kingdom people think about how to get church people into the world. Church people are worried that the world might change the church. Kingdom people work to see the church.